This is Think Smart with TMFG, your weekly podcast of what's newsworthy and relevant to everyday Canadians. With your host, Senior Financial Advisor Rob McClelland and Mike Conan of Asante Capital Management. Today on Think Smart with TMFG, Mike and I are going to be discussing why you need to have an estate planning checklist. Mike, I was meeting with a client today. He's turning 80 this year, and he mentioned that him and his wife want to make some changes to their will. And fairly straightforward, they've got three children. Uh, One child has done extremely well financially, so they want to do a distribution prior to the main distribution, which was a third, a third, a third. And I said, that's great. You should get it done right away. He said, well, you know, you know, um, she's, she'll probably die first. You know, she's four years younger than me. So, you know, I've, I've got some time or she'll have some time. And I thought, you know, I said to him, you know, in our business, we probably today have a client die once a month right now. We've been in the, I've been in the business over 30 years. You're, you know, you're 25 years or more. A lot of those deaths are unexpected. Yes, you may know someone's getting up there in age, but we've got people dying in their 60s, their 70s, their 80s, their 90s. There's a 30-year difference between deaths, and a lot of them are very unexpected. So I think it's important for all of our clients to have a really good understanding of what their estate plan looks like because you never know. I always tell people when we started in this business, we were helping people to retire. That was our goal. It was a nice, happy job. Helping people through retirement seemed like a great one. Our job has switched around in the last uh, few years. You know, if you do the numbers, if we're helping people retire 30 years ago, guess how much time you spent in retirement before you hit the next stage? So all those clients that we brought in 25, 30 years ago, we're, we're making sure we're getting them ready for the next stage of life. Now, we still got lots of clients that we're helping to retire, all the newer clients that are coming in that are, you know, the future of the company. But we still have a lot of clients. We've got to make sure that they've got the right plan in place. So let's talk about that plan. What needs to be included in that? So let's start with the most simple thing. Let's start with wills. And let's go through a checklist on your will. So uh, let's just assume someone has a will. Like number one, first check is do you have a will, right? Uh, next check is can you find your will and do you know where it is? And believe it or not, we have many people where we say, uh, they say, yeah, I have my will done. And I say, okay, can you bring it in? And they come in about a, a week later and go, I, I'm, I can't find it. It's very normal to happen. Um, the next thing to go through is go through the will and make sure, uh, start with the first line is usually starts to name your executors in your will. And make sure the executors still make sense from uh, from an from number one a make sure they're alive and make sure they're well and from a second point of view make sure they're the right age like if you're 85 years old and your executor is your sister who is 83 you may want to rethink that right and find someone more of an appropriate age uh, other little things about executors too make sure they're still in Canada you know uh, it's uh, very difficult to be an executor from a will if you're in the U S deal with a Canadian will. A lot of times people put two executors down, one moves to the States, now you have an issue, right? Talking about executor, there's two types of uh, executors you can have. You can have people acting jointly, or you can have people acting jointly and severally. 
There's a difference between that. When people are acting jointly, they both have to agree and sign on any decision. If they're acting jointly and severally, either one can can do things. So if you have a very good relationship with a family, they all get along well, and you just want to do ease of uh, estate administration, joint and severally can be very easy because that way both people don't have to be there to, to sign. If one lives in, one of your kids is in Vancouver and one's over here and they are jointly and severally, means the child that's over here can sign documents if they need to. A couple of other things, you know, I always think of of this one when if you've appointed let's say you have two children and you're appointing two executors if they get along perfectly that's great if they even have subtle differences you may want to have a tiebreaker in there if they can't come to a decision on exactly what to do and it could be as simple as are we selling the family home are we selling the family cottage or are we keeping it on are we selling it you know I, I notice right now there's a lot of houses for sale maybe it's not a good time to sell your house right now uh, what if your parents died, you know, three months ago and you've got to sell the house? Maybe you want to wait. So little things like that, you need a tiebreaker. Another one is if, if you're going to be making charitable donations, you're better off using dollar amounts than percentages. If you're using percentages, those charities are going to do a deep dive into the will to understand are they getting every dollar they think they're supposed to get. Remember, if you want to give to charities, you can also make a charity a beneficial on a beneficiary on part of your TFSA or part of your RIF too. Other ways to do that outside the will. That again, don't create the audit trail that you need for uh, an estate and a will. So we're doing a checklist here. So checklist item number one is make sure your will is current and everyone on there is still current and it still reflects your wishes. Let's go to the second item on our checklist, Mike. What's that? Your power of attorney. Again, the same thing we talked about with wills. Again, understand how your power of attorney works. A lot of times you'll have your spouse as your power of attorney. Uh, if a spouse passes away, it will usually have a secondary, uh, second power of attorney. But make sure you always have a backup. Sometimes a wife passes away and they just have one child. They have no backup. So you got to make sure you have enough people to back that up and make changes to it. And again, you have the same thing. You can have people act jointly where they have to act together in unison, or they can be jointly and severally where they can each make a decision. No right way to say, but it's what it, what's right for a person. And again, if you don't have children or a spouse, then you're, act, you're putting friends in that position of being the power of attorney. And there's two powers of attorney, one for property and property includes investments, things like that, and then one for uh, what we call the personal power of attorney. And that's sort of if, if you're in the hospital and you're still, you're still alive and you're going to make it, but someone needs to be making some medical decisions on your behalf. And again, you want someone, you want to make sure those documents are current. Everyone mentioned in them is still part of your life, and they're young enough that they're still going to be there when that time comes. Also to understand, many power of attorneys have a triggering event, and something has to make that active. Many say if you become incapacitated, that person can take over. Now there's good and bad. I've heard lawyers go both ways in this. The triggering event is nice because it protects you from someone just using your power of attorney, but it means someone has to claim you to be incompetent before they can actually access or use that power of attorney which is very tricky sometimes to get a doctor to claim someone's being incompetent so that power of attorney is active. There's other power of attorneys, if the people have them in their hand, it's active and they can use it to, uh, and you can use those types of power of attorneys even if someone's away on a holiday or somewhere else in the world, you need someone to do something on your behalf. 
Let's go to item three on our checklist, beneficiaries. Um, Mike, you told me the story the other day that we had opened up an account about six months ago, and somehow or other, we had failed to put the beneficiaries on it, and somehow it went through three different checklists and didn't get noticed. And it's an example of something that can happen. We've seen lots of accounts, not at Asante, but from other firms, where there's been no proper beneficiary listed on the account, or the beneficiary and the distribution that was planned was not what they wanted. So let's start off with the obvious. If you have a spouse, absolutely, spouse has to be uh, from a tax purpose and every type of purpose for beneficiaries on RSPs, RIFs, LIFs, locked in, LIRAs, whatever there is, your spouse should be your beneficiary. Huge tax advantage for that. There's also some more complicated things if you have a disabled child or a, a minor child that you can use too, but majority is going to go to the spouse. Second on that, if uh, that spouse has passed, if you don't have a spouse or that spouse passed away, now you can avoid probate, a lot of aggravation by having your kids set as beneficiaries on those registered accounts too. So again, with your RIFs or your tax-free savings account, you can have those go directly to the kids when you pass away and avoid any probate fees. So that's a huge tax savings or a, a you know, we call probate a tax. It's another form of tax. The other one that I think is important is in, in the registered accounts, once you've converted an RSP or a locked-in retirement account to a RIF, a registered retirement income fund, or a LIF, a life income fund, then we're moving to a different type of beneficiary. And we used to just have regular beneficiaries. What have we moved to now, Mike? Now we have a successor annuitants. And what's the advantage of the successor annuitant as opposed to just a straight beneficiary? It carries over more easily from a tax point of view, from a tax return point of view. You can still get away with some of the uh, doing things as beneficiaries, but it's more complicated, more forms need to be filed from a tax point of view. What about TFSAs? What rule do they fall under? Again, same thing. You want to have your spouse as your beneficiary is or successor annuitant is obviously the easiest way to go. And that way it goes over to their current TFSA, continues to give the whole room that was there originally. So if uh, two spouses that both had $100,000 in a TFSA, it goes out to the surviving spouse. Now they have $200,000 room in their TFSA and continues to grow from there. Life insurance policies. That's one that's easy to miss, right? Because you don't get your statement very often. They're very confusing to read. And number three, they don't put beneficiaries on the statements <laughs> just they, to make they, it they even. They barely put anything. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. But beneficiaries generally aren't listed on the statements. So what happens when sp one spouse dies and their spouse was the beneficiary, no one ever thinks to change it over to the kids. And it would go to your state, which eventually would follow your wills and go through to the kids, but it would again be subject to probate fees. So better off to make sure those insurance policies are up to date with current beneficiaries. Let's keep going. So we've covered number three on our checklist, which is beneficiaries. Let's go to open accounts. This is something where you should usually make sure your spouse is joint with you on all your accounts. As long as there's no reason uh, spells alone or something weird on, on the outside to give a rationale for not having them joint, joint accounts make a lot of sense. The big advantage there is it avoids probate. The big advantage there is if something happened to either one of you, it would go to the other spouse, free of tax, free of probate. Um, it's called joint with right of survivorship. It uses that 
you know, that it's actually a short form WROS, uh, JTWROS, but that means joint with right of survivorship. What about putting kids on open accounts? What are your thoughts there? Good idea or bad idea? This is a complicated question. And I think many times it's taken far too lightly and people worry too much about avoiding probate more than the ramifications of what they do. We've seen a lot of things go wrong with people coming with easy solution. A lot of people do very big mistakes and we have three kids and just make a joint with one kid that's uh, usually doing their banking and assume that everything's going to be distributed the right way. That doesn't necessarily happen. It causes tons of problems. Uh, it's just something you should really take a look at. Um, before you go and do it. There's a lot of problems if a child passes away before the parent can cause a lot of problems where the money never goes where it was intended to go. So, Especially if that spouse is married, right? If that, if that child is married to someone and they've opened up a joint account, that's considered a family asset. Yeah, you're in a situation where if the person gets sued or they go through a divorce, that money can be at risk. So you gotta be very careful of that. Yeah, so that's just one to to not take lightly. There's some other, uh, there's new accounts that have come out with some uh, firms which are called uh, gifts, uh, joint accounts with gift of beneficial ownership. When I read the legalese behind it, it's it's not been really put through, they're sort of new. So let's see what the government says about them and how they go through some tests when the states go through. Again, it's a way that people are trying to use to uh, avoid probate fees, but Usually someone finds a loophole, then the government finds a way to close down that loophole. The, the minute the door is open, the government's objective is to shut that door again as quickly as possible. And, you know, the, the tax accountants of the world, the tax professionals are out there looking for to open those doors all the time. I was talking to a tax professional last week, and they have concerns. Some new government rules have made it so if there's a joint account and they don't have equal ownership in it, that the person who doesn't have the lesser of the ownership is gonna to have to file a, a joint trust return because it would be considered a trust, which would create a whole bunch of paperwork. So again, the government keeps on putting roadblocks in and the accountant said they don't know where it's gonna go because all the accountants are arguing with it because it's gonna create a lot of paperwork. But again, the government's gonna to continue to put roadblocks in for any way that people try to do to avoid either paying probate or taxes. Let's move to number five, planning for the eventual funeral. Some options there, you can prepay some of it so that, you know, when it eventually happens, we know we're all gonna die at some point, maybe it's prepaid for, maybe you put a $5,000 deposit or a $10,000 deposit. We have a tool we use called My Final Wishes, which gets people to start to think of, you know, what type of funeral do they want? Do they wanna be buried? Do they wanna be cremated? Do they wanna be, you know, in a coffin? Do they wanna be in a box? How, what, what do they want? What are their wishes? What, where do they want to be buried? Uh, what type of music do they want playing? All of that. Is it a family funeral? Is it a public funeral? Lots of choices. Those are better made while you're of sound mind and body and can make those decisions. And that isn't when you're in your 80s because making decisions becomes much tougher when you're in your 80s. Or you leave it for the kids. 
you know, it, it's funny. I met with one person that was involved in the funeral in, industry and they said they didn't like the idea of prepaid funerals. They said they thought it was a beautiful experience for the family to get together and make those decisions. So there's yeah, different- What uh, would mom or dad have wanted? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting time for a family to get together. So they said when you go and uh, pre-plan everything, you take away that family time where they get to sit together and plan your funeral. What about purchasing a plot? Good idea, bad idea? I think that's a good idea. They're getting more expensive. And it's something that uh, it's, you generally know where you're going to want to be buried. That's not a decision the kids have to make. That's a decision you're going to make. And it's a lot easier if that's purchased ahead of time and the kids don't have to think about it. Discussing those wishes with your family. I think it's a good idea to let everybody know what, you, what you'd like or what you don't want. Yeah. You, you know, it's funny. They talk things about buried, cremation, donation of organs. It's a weird thing. You don't usually talk about, you know, whether you want your eyes donated, but when someone's dying, because I've had parents die, the first thing they come, do you want to donate your mother's eyes? And I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to give my mom's eyes. Yeah. It's just complicated questions, right? That you get into that you never really discuss with a person. And if that mom was a nice person, maybe she want to give away her eyes, right? But it's uh, something you'd probably have a discussion with beforehand. So I was reading this book that was uh, talking about Tibetan um, death characteristics and you know, one of the one of the concepts was that the spirit is around for the couple of days after the death, and so you think you're not being watched, but you might be being watched. Now, you know, I don't know whether to believe that or not. It was Tibetan. It was interesting. I enjoyed the book, but uh, there's something else to think about. Let's go to the next one. Last one on the uh, on the checklist: house and cottage. Thoughts on that? Let's go to the house, the simple one. Declutter. Declutter. Start to get rid of stuff. Make it easy on your kids. Right? Yeah. If you haven't used the stuff in a year, get rid of it. I have more teapots in my possession now for my mom that I would possibly know what to do with, and I feel guilty to sell them all. Right. But, uh, and and for, no one wants them. No, I couldn't sell them. You couldn't <laughs> sell them? Let me put it this way. I feel guilty to throw them out. <laughs> uh, they, might not even, they might not even be sold in a value village, so you're better to get rid of them. Cottage property. One of the most complicated uh, subjects we have, and we've been through it with lots of clients. It's it's uh, every parent has this dream of all their kids living happily ever together at the cottage with their grandkids playing and uh, doing everything like they did 30 years ago at the cottage. But the reality is it's not only your kids have to get along, your kids' spouses have to get along and their your kids' kids have to all get along and be able to make this work and both be financially capable of carrying this cottage over time. And that's a rare scenario where that all comes together like that. Figuring out what the plan is for that doesn't get easier. You're better to do that in your 70s probably rather than waiting to your 80s. And nothing against eight-year-olds, but the one thing we have noticed, once clients get into their 80s, they have more difficulty making bigger decisions. We know for a fact that any type of properties, cottages or houses are e-liquid assets. And they're very they're the most difficult part of an estate. Financial assets are very easy to deal with. They have a market value that's uh, that's traded by the minute. You always know what your portfolio is worth. Your house, you never know what it's worth, and your cottage, you never really know what it's worth until it's actually sold. So it's not as and it has emotional attachments to it. The nice thing about uh, liquid or cash investments, they don't have any emotions attached to them. You don't really care if someone sells the portfolio to give you your part of it. You do care if someone sells the cottage. So sometimes detaching yourself from those, let's call them emotional investments, uh, can make sense over time too. That brings us to the end of another week. We hope we've helped you with a 
uh, a state planning checklist and have opened your eyes and get some conversations going. Um, at the McClellan Financial Group, we've got a couple of events coming up. Be sure to check out our website, tmfg.ca, to see a list of upcoming events. Thank you for joining us today. This is Rob and Mike with Think Smart from the McClellan Financial Group of Asante Capital Management, reminding you to live the life that makes you happy. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please feel free to give us a good Google review. Any comments would be appreciated. Thank you. You've been listening to the McClellan Financial Group of Asante Capital Management Limited. Asante Capital Management Limited is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. Insurance products and services are provided through Asante Estate and Insurance Services Incorporated. This material is provided for general information and is subject to change without notice. Every effort has been made to compile this material from reliable sources. However, no warranty can be made as to its accuracy or completeness. Before acting on any of the previous information, please make sure to see a professional advisor for individual financial advice based on your personal circumstances. The opinions expressed are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Asante Capital Management Limited.